Welcome to today's episode of The Power of Reinvention. I'm Kathy Sharp Ross, and we're here to talk with my guests about the dreams, the visions, and the passions that individuals have every day and dare to explore them. Whether it's business or personal, you're entitled to live the life that you want, and no matter the circumstances, you have the power to create success, fulfill your dreams, and live with passion. That's what I'm talking about. So dare greatly and happy reinventing, folks. Let's do this. Hello, and welcome to The Power of Reinvention. I am super excited today to have my guest, Doug Scott, with me. Hi, Doug. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. I am going to just give a little background on you. And for those who don't know, I created The Power of Reinvention podcast as an offshoot for my book, Reinvent Your Life, What Are You Waiting For?, which came out right before the pandemic. Who ever thought that we would need a guidebook for reinventing more than now? I mean, that was just some great irony in my life. And out of that, since I couldn't go on all of the scheduled book tour events and parties and launch events and what have you for the book, I kind of reinvented my own book marketing plan and created the Reinvention Virtual Chat and the Power of Reinvention. And my website, the Reinvention Exchange, has so much incredible content and and inspirational and motivational interviews with people who have done some pretty special things with all parts of their lives from all over the world. So today I am featuring Doug Scott on my Power of Reinvention podcast here. And Doug is just, wow, where do I even begin? You know, I've got a bio in front of me that I'm going to read, but truly I've known Doug for years and he is a serial reinventor, a serial entrepreneur, a visionary, a content creator, a guy with such imagination that he brings to business. He has been a global leader in entertainment and brand marketing. He's the co-founder and chief creative officer of Subnation, the leading media platform for the culture of gaming and decentralized lifestyles, as well as a general partner in Surround Ventures. He's also founding partner of Culture Group, which is an entertainment marketing agency based in Singapore, which manages integrated esports programs. Prior to that, he was EVP of Marketing and Brand Solutions for Endeavor, where he was responsible for developing and producing innovative and successful marketing platforms for Fortune 100 brands. Some of the most notable work includes campaigns with Rolex, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, Bud Light, Cadillac, the Warhol Museum, T-Mobile, Esports Strategy, and so much more. He also supported various divisions of Endeavor, working with E-League, Miss Universe, the Miami Open, Professional Bull Riders, Color Run, Freeze Art Fair, Serena Williams, and so many more amazing companies and clients. Before that, he was the founder and president of WPP's Ogilvy Entertainment, where he created groundbreaking branded content programs and landmark landmark collaborations for world-class companies. He's been recognized by Adweek as one of the top 50 most influential executives in media and entertainment. He's earned over 60 awards for creativity and effectiveness from competitions like Can Lions, London International Awards, the FE Worldwide Awards, Clio Awards, the Webbies, and the One Show. Doug is also known for his work as a content pioneer and cultural provocateur. 
He executive produced Andy Warhol, 15 Minutes Eternal. He is also the co-founder of the Museum of Advertising and an active member and advisor to some of the most innovative technology and entertainment startups. And the list goes on and on. (laughs) And I think we're getting the picture. Doug is a very busy and very fun guy. So Doug, we're going to delve into this a whole lot more because I think you set the stage and all that you've done to just sort of show that we don't have to have one path in life and that we can build on everything we've done. And I want to kind of take you back in time. I want to go back to the very, very early days, probably more like when your kids, where your kids are at now, who was little Doug? What were you up to at that age? And what did you envision for yourself? You know, are you anywhere close to where you thought you'd be? I mean, I don't know what what you would have envisioned at that age, but would love to hear who Little Doug was. Yeah, I mean, well, first off, it's it's a pleasure to be here with you, Kathy. Um, I'm inspired by you know your story. We've been friends for a very long time, and uh, you know, from from CES to to Can and everything in between. Uh, you know, we've we've kind of been on a a journey together. For and sure. it's, it's great to be here uh, at this moment to share a little bit about the journey that I've been on and I'm sure where I'm going and to reconnect with you in uh, this uh, kind of new world that we're living in. Um, in terms of, of what I was as a younger child, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I, I remember, you know, times where, where it was a lot of creative expression. Um, I remember times of, of having ideas and drawing them on paper and, and writing them down. Um, I live by my, today I live by my moleskin books and, uh, you know, even going back, I found journals and scraps of paper and notebooks, uh, that were hidden away, uh, that, you know, uh, really, uh, were ideas that just, kind of came to me and I put them on paper, uh, not really sure what to do with them at 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, you know, times, uh, traveling, you know, uh, with my father at times who was a traveling salesman and, mm. uh, just observing the world that he was in and thinking about products and combinations of things to create. And how he connected um, with then, people because your network is very much your world as well. So you must have seen the way he had to connect with people. I would imagine doing what he did for a living. Yeah, he 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 was a people person. Yeah, uh, it was all about relationships and you know uh, going to see them face to face and um, you know different time in terms of sales process and and what have you. And then even thinking through as a as a young collector, you know, my grandfather got me into stamps and coins and then baseball cards and, uh, you know, going through the basement uh, a couple weeks ago, coming across these yellow pads of paper that I would write down, you know, all of my top cards and the date up top, almost like a spreadsheet before there was Excel, oh my God. right. And how much it was. And then I would go back into the Beckett's book and find it and write it down again. And Right. Uh, and so, I love, you know, I love that reference, of course, because as we've talked about, my son is now in that business of the sports car trading with the LA hobbyist. And the fact that you two are connected through other people on that, I love that you just brought that up. So go on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and, and that was, you know, that was really, I think, part of the, 
for, formative, you know, influences in my life. Um, you know, I, I'm still, as we all are learning every day about who I am and, 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 uh, I was very fortunate to, um, you know, be able to love what I do and do what I love and, and pursue my passion. I, I can honestly say, I don't know that I've ever had a job. Um, you know, I do things to make a living and at times there are things that, you know, within what I do, you know, it's, it's tough, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, but you know, um, the, the ability to write the script, the ability to go and, uh, you know, be able to create and bring those things to life and, you know, uh, not everything, you know, is, is, uh, comes to fruition, but, you know, it was really the, those influences, uh, that set me on that course to where I wanted to go. Uh, when I came out of high school, went to university of Maryland. I was an economics finance major. I, you know, uh, uh, was in a fraternity. I think I was uh, in fewer classes and more events <laughs> more than anything. But, right. Yeah, more social. Uh, but even then, it was it was about starting businesses. It was about creating. It was the t-shirt business, the boxer short business, mm. uh, trying to do a concert on campus, uh, you know, trying to get a... Uh, a commemorative stamp done uh, uh, for uh, AIDS at the time uh, when Elton John was very focused on that and reaching out to Peter Max, who I didn't know, but I wanted to do a stamp with him. And, you know, just trying to push through and network my way into things that could make a difference, but also really uh, aligned with my interests. I was going to say, what I'm hearing is exactly that, that you were sort of following your passions. And, you know, we talk about this so much on this show with so many people that the notion of following your passion will lead you to success is so important for people to recognize. I think we're living in one of the, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I found that people were constantly saying to me, wow, look at your life. You're so lucky. Look at what you get to do. You're always having fun. You're traveling. You're successful. You're having a good time and you're doing all these cool things and you're making money at it. And I said, well, anybody can do that. That was just the choice I made at a very early age to sort of really follow my vision or my dream or my passion for what I wanted to be doing every day of my life. I didn't know what the plan was. I didn't know where I was going to end up, but I certainly put myself on that course rather than sort of trying to fit into a box, which was just not for me. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they are entitled. They may not know right now how to get there, and they may have been doing something for 20 years and kind of go, well, this is all I know. But it doesn't mean that's where you have to stay. Oh, look, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, you know, it's it, it, the downside to that, right, is, is at what point is work play and his play work. Right. Um, you know, my, my, uh, my kids say to me that, you know, I don't have an off switch. Yeah. And I hear that. (laughs) And when you're passionate about what you do and there's, you know, you're out there in the world creating, Mm -hmm. right. You're always thinking and the perspective that you see things and the lens that you look at things is different. Yeah. And it's hard to turn it off. Right. You could be watching television, driving down the street and you're like, look at that billboard. Oh my God, that would be great for that. You're watching TV. Like nothing is irrelevant in our world. Nobody and nothing. So I can relate to that a hundred percent. But it's also exciting. I mean, look, I think 
we get to a place where we go, okay, I know where my off time is. I know how to switch off and watch a show for an hour or read a book or get up and meditate in the morning or take a walk or spend an hour with a friend. That serves me beautifully. But the rest of the time, my entertainment is what I do for a living. And I'm okay with that, you know? So I don't know if you feel, I, I think you do. It's it's very similar. We just have to give ourselves a little reprieve because it's actually refreshing to do that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And and it, it's, it, it it is a balance, right? Uh, I don't know if there's equilibrium there by any means, but there, there, there is a balance there. And I do find that when I'm able to step away, you know, it adds a new perspective or, or opens myself up a little bit more yeah. versus being, you know, down in the trench, uh, you know, digging every single day. So, Very good point. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the, you know, how I got to the path I got during college. Uh, you know, I worked up on the Hill, um, mm-hmm. very quickly realized I did not want to be in politics, uh, just based on, you know, how, how our system inside the Beltway works. Yeah. Uh, it was a great learning experience. Um, started to, uh, really then, um, having been a kid that grew up on, uh, early days of computers, uh, Commodore 64, uh, and Apple IIe, uh, going to Radio Shack and, you know, programming in basic language and then C++. Uh, I then had an opportunity to move out to California. My brother was in the Navy. He was being deployed with his, uh, his roommates. Uh, they had a house in Los Altos Hills. Uh, they were like, we need somebody to house sit. And I was raised my hand. I said, I just graduated. I'll come out. So, uh, he and I drove across country together. Uh, great experience, uh, you know, in terms of my step, my older stepbrother. And, um, uh, I got out there, found a job, uh, at Gordon Beersh Brewery restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, where I was bartending and waiting tables and applied for a job at Apple because I was like, Oh, I'm in Silicon Valley. Right. right? And, you know, Mecca. Right? right. And, uh, didn't get the job, became friends with a gentleman, Tony Perkins, who had founded upside magazine. And had just left that, uh, was at Silicon Valley bank before that. And, uh, one night, Tony, myself, and this other gentleman, Ken Conrad, who used to write speeches for Andy Grove. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were they were drinking and we were talking, and Tony starts describing this new magazine he wants to do, and started spitballing uh, names and um, started to go down. You know, he was talking about IPOs and venture capital, and 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 Ken was like, "Well, before a company goes public, they issue a red herring." And we were like, "Ah, oh, that's it!" And wow. uh, the red herring magazine was born right there. In I Palo did not Alto, know this and, story. I love that. Yeah. And, uh, and that got me into the world of tech and finance and publishing. And mm. then with two other gentlemen, um, uh, Chris, Chris Alden and Zach Merck, um, uh, we, uh, started, uh, Zach Herlick, actually, uh, we started to, uh, you know, design and, and build the, uh, magazine out of Chris Alden's parents, uh, garage, uh, and a true, Amazing. uh, garage startup. It happened to be in Woodside, California. So, right. you know, it wasn't a bad garage by any means. Right. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I, that, that was really my first job. 
Amazing. And that, you know, you think about at that time, you know, not having the savvy, fabulous technology and computers in the digital publishing world that we're in today, you know, the thought of starting a magazine in this day and age is a lot easier because of the technology and what it affords us and what's at our fingertips. That had to have been very old school experience in a way. You know, it was on the cusp, there was stuff there and it was probably felt very innovative at the time, but compared to where we are today, you know, was probably quite the venture to undertake. I mean, look, it was true desktop publishing, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, we used yeah. we used Quirk Express. Oh my God. Uh, yes. Which was all of our layouts. And <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it was the early days of, you know, Apple's tools in terms of the creator community that they were focused on. Uh, I liken that era to today's era of digital filmmaking, right? right. I mean, it was kind of a, a very similar parallel in that regard. So how did you parlay that? I mean, you've had such a series of incredible experiences and, and jobs and career moves that you've had. How did you sort of parlay that? When was the right time to get out? What was, was there an aha moment that sort of said, okay, this was great. I loved it. It's time to move on. Were you approached by someone that pulled you out of there? Like what became that next stepping stone? And you've had quite a few of those moments. So have they been more self-motivated? Like I've had a great time here. Now I'm ready for my next. I think you are definitely a curiosity seeker. No question about it. Um, you're a builder. You're a creator in a lot of ways. And you're a businessman. So what were those moments where you said, okay, I'm ready for my next act, if you will? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. After the Red Herring, um, while at the Red Herring, I was a, I, I was introduced to a gentleman, Ken Nahan. Um, he was a uh, art dealer in New York and New Orleans, um, represented uh, Max Ernst and Tio Tobias, Max Bapard, a lot of uh, Israeli-based and, uh, you know, uh, Jewish-European artists. Mm. Um, and... Uh, in our conversation, uh, you know, uh, really on the back end of, of the Red Herring, uh, Internet 1.0, right, Web 1, uh, emerged. Uh, I remember, you know, uh, in Mark Andreessen and Jim Clark talking to us about Netscape and Dave Philo and Jerry Yang talking about us, talking to us about Yahoo, where they were going to index this thing called the web. And we were like, what are you talking about? Right. And Ken had this vision, 70-year-old uh, art dealer had this vision uh, that he wanted to image all his artwork and mm -hmm. create a uh, an intranet uh, to connect dealers around the world because the typical uh, art dealer can only show 5% of their inventory at any one time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the industry uses slides and photos to basically transact. Uh, so how do you create a more efficient network? Um, and again, the economics, you know, uh, business degree, clicked in and like, okay, hmm, the art world, uh, you know, auction world. If I bring one more buyer into an auction, it's the highest price paid at a given moment. I'm going to drive the price up. Right. So he had this vision called art view. Uh, he built it using, I think the database was 4d, if I'm not mistaken, again, going back to early days mm -hmm. and he had this cabinet in his gallery in Soho, Love the it. TV inset right. and an interface where you could search by color or name or artist or period or style. Right. Um, and the keyboard on this little table where the art dealer can talk to you wow. and bring up images yeah. and rotate and see the images and rotate them through. Right. right. And then, uh, so I was fascinated by that. Uh, I had grown up, my mother was an interior designer, architect, and, you know, uh, we spent a lot of time in art galleries in Philadelphia and, you know, was 
you know, big Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright fan and, uh, you know, love the Guggenheim Museum here in New York. And uh, it was one of those things where like I spent five years in the Valley. I felt like I wanted to live in New York. This was my opportunity. It's Soho. It's the art world. Right. right? Oh, perfect. Uh, you know, the, the magazine was going in a direction that, you know, I wasn't so sure that that was for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I checked a lot of the boxes. So he asked me to come in and, you know, kind of run art view because he had a 20,000 square foot physical gallery uh, as well. And I came in and wrote the business plan and started to talk to potential investors and started to talk to partners and hey, we need a shipping solution. So I got introduced to Fred Smith at FedEx and we need an insurance solution and near north. So we started to bundle all that together. And a friend of mine was working for GE Capital at the time, a guy Mm -hmm. that I went to college with. Mm -hmm. And he introduced me to his boss and uh, and he's like, look, I really love this. Uh, We have a lot of businesses uh, we're the largest buyer of 56K uh, frame relay from Sprint. So we can use our network and we, uh, we finance hardware so we can finance the systems to the dealer. Wow. And unbeknownst to me, at the time, G was the largest financier of Japanese kimonos. So, uh, you know, so they're in the art world, right? Wow. So, yeah. um, and we had, we had several imaging patents. And long story short, they gave us our seed capital, a couple million bucks. And we started to deploy these systems out, uh, which then, you know, through that, I was introduced to Tom Krenz at the Guggenheim and we did something with Tom and then D.D. Brooks at Sotheby's and we did something with Sotheby's. Amazing. And um, about two years into their investment, GE came in and uh, basically pretty much bought control of the company, uh, brought in their Six Sigma management team. Hmm. And that's kind of when I knew that I was, you know. <laughs> like, this is getting too big in corporate for me. Not yes. not, not enough of a, of a sandbox, really. Pretty much, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I left there and again, it was just one of these leapfrogs where, you know, I was introduced to somebody through a friend uh, and uh, I was getting married at the time uh, to, uh, to my daughter's mother. And uh, it was an opportunity to move to LA and build a company called the Hollywood Stock Exchange. I remember and, those days very well. I remember it was, yeah, it was and, all about, yeah. I mean, you created what was really a game-changing sort of, I, th- I think so many companies took the lead from what you guys did with that. Yeah, it was it was a little before its time. Yeah, uh, I have to say uh, the vision was Max Kaiser, who yeah. uh, now is a Bitcoin maximalist and, mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, like Tim Draper, who turns out was one of our investors in the Red Herring. So I've been surrounded by, uh, you know, these these geniuses that want to change the world through through economic models like, uh, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and others. But, you know, we had our Hollywood dollar, yeah. uh, which was, you know, a precursor to uh, cryptocurrency. And it was a virtual market built off of proprietary algorithms that use data that range from box office earnings to, you know, uh, to the studio, the genre of the film, the actor of the film, historical uh, box office grosses, right? Because if you look at July 4th, uh, from a regressive standpoint, you can see, you know, on average, what theaters will do in America and start mm-hmm. to the money ball the business. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it was a game that was trading three times the volume of NASDAQ every day, but then it was a research tool. Yeah. Right. Uh, and uh, we really felt that we could go after NRG and Joe Farrell and what he was doing with his trailer testing. Yeah. And I'll never forget sitting in meetings with, 
you know, Dick Cook at Disney or Arthur Cohen at Paramount, you know, and I'm saying, you know, it's a game. Right. What do you mean it's a research tool, right? <laughs> and we're like, no, you're not understanding. And, you know, and it's so, you know, to your point, it was, it was, you know, it, it, it set in motion. Yeah. Uh, a data set. I was just going to say it was the early data mining and it got people thinking differently about how to almost, I hate to trivialize, but gamify what was happening, which is now exactly the world we're living in and what the tools are that people are really working with. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, we, we built that up. We raised a ton of money. Uh, you know, we, we moved into the old Ritz furniture building next to Barney's Beanery. Mm-hmm. I put up a 150 foot long, five foot high stock ticker that scrolled Tom Cruiser's name across showing that he was down for the day. And the phone just started to ring. It's like, what are you talking about? My client's down. Like, I don't even know what that means. And then we started to send out. I'll never forget, Kathy. We, 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 we had this idea uh, every Thursday to send out a flash report. Uh, which basically said, this is how the films were going to open for the weekend. Yeah. And then this is how the stars in those films were performing. Right. And we started faxing them into the talent agencies oh and the studios and the production companies. <laughs> God. Right. And, and people started freaking out. Right. And it, was, and it was one of these things that coupled with uh, we had taken on an investment from NBC. Um, and uh, as part of that deal, we had a, a segment within Access Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And uh, when that got announced in Variety, uh, the EP over there at Access got the calls from the studios and say, look, if you guys go on television and allow HSX to talk about win, place, and show for the weekends, we're going to block you guys from, from behind-the-scenes access to our films. Right, right. Because so it was a power in their play. mind... Yeah. Well, it was a power play. And in their mind... The consumer's making a decision what mm-hmm. they're going to see for the weekend on Thursday night, mm-hmm. right? Like, which movie am I going to oh, see? Yeah. And that is you going to change. You are the original influencers. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, you know, the answer is yes. But we took over the Ritz Furniture Building. We built the floor of the Hollywood Stock Exchange. We did our big Oscar event, O2K. It was, uh, the whole theme was how to be in harmony with technology. It was Tech Shui. Yeah. And uh, we did it at... Uh, the House of Blues on La, Cien- La Cienega um, and Sunset. Yep. And uh, we had Rob Schneider host and Earth, Wind and Fire perform. Uh, Toyota was our sponsor. Uh, Joe, Excited Home, was uh, Excited Home was one of our partners. Right. And we had so many people. He went across the street, bought out the comedy club, and we had people roll over to the comedy right, club. Right. Um, we live, we, we webcast the whole thing. Live yeah. streams didn't even right. exist. Right. Uh, Mark Scarper did that for us. And... Bear Stearns was about to take us public. And then the dot-com bubble burst right after uh, Oscar 2000. Moment. Yeah. That was the moment. They were yep. Yep. And we went from 120 employees to 30, mm. uh, laid off everybody. And that was, and that was the moment, going back to your question, that was the moment where I was like, okay, my, my wife at the time, now ex-wife, she was like, I want to move back to New York. I've had enough of this place. Right. My parents are here. We have a kid. So we moved back to New York in December of 2020, uh, in a snowstorm, I then was introduced to the folks at Hypnotic, uh, Dave Bardis, and uh, well, the folks at Hypnotic and the folks at, at Nibblebox, Dave Bardis and Doug Lyman. You said 2020, but I'm thinking it wasn't 2020. It was. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Two, two, 2000. Two, exactly. 2000. That's yeah. yeah 2000, I know you've 2000. been in New York for a while. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm uh, 2020. It's like 2020. Wait, <laughs> well, uh, today, 3, is, no. today is two, 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 two. Or I know. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah. It's a good number. A lot of twos. The angel number, apparently. Yeah. Um, yeah, 2000. And then, uh, so then I got on that path of hypnotic and got into that, which set my course for uh, branded content. I was going to say the branding, was- the agency, the content, and that whole world, which too was really in its emerging stage. So you were very much at the forefront of a lot of what happened in that space. I mean, you've worked on incredible collaborations with great IP, great brands. I mean, you were really helping brands figure out how to tell their stories, you know, in the very early stages. Yes. Uh, We got lucky. Um, uh, Hypnotic which had an investment from Universal Pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that investment was the Million Dollar Film Festival, which allowed us to give away a million dollar feature film to a young filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, you know, Hypnotic's real business was like Adam Film distributing short films. But when the dot com bubble burst, it's like, you know, nobody was paying for those. There was no network for those. There was no distribution channel for those. They had a little bit of deal with Sundance Channel, but nothing special. So we had to figure out what are we going to go sell? Yeah. Uh, and at the time, uh, the big show on TV was Survivor. Mm-hmm. And one day we were brainstorming and we were like, what if we created Survivor for filmmaking? What would that look like? And we started to lay out this whole model. Um, and we said, okay. Uh, opening season is Sundance. Uh, right. All-Star Game is Cannes. And then second year, we did Tribeca, Cannes right. Film Festival. Right, right, right. And then do all the World Series is Toronto. So that yeah. gives us nine months. Yeah. So what does that competition now look like? Uh, and, you know, it's a submission. And then it's an extreme filmmaking competition. In 10 days, you got to have a cast shoot at it and premiere the film. Right. And then you go and spend the summer living in L.A. Uh, you have offices on the, on, the, uh, on the lot at Universal. You're right? You're making a film and then you go to Toronto and you pitch it, right? And you pitch your Oscar film, you show your thing, et cetera. And utilizing Universal and the million dollars that we had and the resources we had, the filmmakers could shoot their scene and all of that stuff. We had we had, uh, uh, we had some very interesting uh, mentors for the filmmakers. So needless to say, we put that whole thing together, pitched it to Daimler Chrysler. Right. Chrysler bought it. Yeah. Right. The whole thing for a two year period. And we created the Chrysler Million Dollar Film Festival. Mm. And it wound up being a better BMW Films because BMW right. Films had just come out. Right. Spending $30 million with Ang Lee and Guy Ritchie yep. directing all of these crazy films yep. that were came on a CD-ROM. Right. That were distributed <laughs> right. in New York Magazine, bundled with New York Magazine. <laughs> That's great. Um, and... We built a, a, a great platform for young filmmakers. Nine out of the 10 filmmakers that were finalists got signed by the major agencies. Several went on to create very big films, one of which was Jeff Wadlow, uh, who's a great director now in Hollywood. Uh, and that was the real impetus for branded content uh, in that regard uh, with experiences where, you know, at Sundance, we had the Chrysler, you know, I'll never forget, we, the first year we did the Chrysler um, uh, Lodge and I had uh, PT Cruisers driving up and down from Main Street to the house. Great. Yeah. I had Alanis Morissette performing acoustically in the living room. I Fabulous. had uh, gifting suites. Yeah. And every night, you know, one night we did uh, uh, for Empire, uh, we did uh, a dinner for John Leguizamo. And he 
did basically stand up right there after dinner with his whole cast and all the guests. <laughs> right. Um, and it was the, you know, it was that Motorola house that Dave yep. Pinsky had done oh, years yeah. ago. But I was Hartzler there. Yep. Meets, you know, meets uh, the filmmaking sessions that went on. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great format. Uh, unfortunately for us, uh, Matt and Ben had Project Greenlight at the same time, oh, yeah. uh, which was a similar competition format. So they went down the HBO show route, which they got done. Uh, and we had more of the experiential route. Uh, but it was a huge success. And I'll never forget, we got a call from our client, uh, Jeff Bell, who you probably know Jeff. Yeah, God, uh, I haven't heard that name in a little while. I love yeah. Jeff. And, and just like we just got a check for uh for for the film like what what's this for it was like it's your profit on the film yeah right so it's like profit on the film we sell cars right so it was this moment where you know the the whole branded entertainment thing kind of started to click and you know from that we had a lot more brands inquiring with us and then i uh kind of left there uh you know doug and uh dave bardis wanted to focus more on tv and film and you know, I felt like the kind of the brand thing was coming full circle. Right. Because when you look at it, it really goes back to the Colgate Comedy Hour, the Gillette Fight Night, the GE Theater, right? It really goes back to early days of television. Yeah. Where brands are going to own content, not rent media. Right. And, uh, you know, I wanted to lean into that in a very big way. And that set me off for my next journey for God knows what, 12 years, uh, 14 years of where I was, you know, deep in the branded content space. And as you were going from these different sort of, I would say, verticals in a way, I mean, they all blend in one way or another and the tools that you pick up along the way, were there moments where you said, okay, I'm out of my lane, but this is exciting. I'm going to conquer this. I'm going to figure this out. I mean, as entrepreneurs, you know, every day is sort of a new, almost like a, it's almost like the challenge that we want to figure something out. And I used to say, having run an agency for 30 years, yeah, we can do that and we'll figure it out. I'll hire the right people around me. I'll learn. I'll get educated. I'll find my mentors that are going to help me, but I'll never say no to something because I have that ability to sort of lean into something. And, you know, I think that's very much your spirit, but were there moments where you were like, what the heck am I doing? You know, people talk about imposter syndrome and yet it's the motivating force when as entrepreneurs are trying to sort of create and that's where some of our greatest successes come from. So were there moments when you were kind of navigating from one vertical to the next, even though there may have been overlap where you just went, holy cow, I have no idea what I'm doing here, but I am going to just go for it, figure it out, love it and conquer it. So, you know, look, there, there've definitely been moments in my career where I kind of took a half a step back and said, you know, how did I get here? Yeah. Um, that's good. Um, I think that, you know, in, in life, things move so fast and you have such momentum that if you stop and question why you miss it. Right. And to your point, I've been very fortunate, uh, to one, have people around me that know more than I do. Right. And I can learn from them. And, and two, you know, from my, early formative days where it was like, I know everything to where, you know, as I matured, uh, I come to realize that I know what I know and I finally know what I don't know. And therefore, how am I going to learn what I need to know? Right. Um, and 
when asked several times, you know, over my career, like, what would you change? I think the one thing that I would change is, is depth of knowledge, mm. right? Like in, in the world of entertainment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm a producer. I produce stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not a director, right? right? From a craft standpoint, right? right? And although right. I'm a member of a PPA, right? Which is great. And that is producing as a craft, right? right? Uh, but I'm not a director. I'm not a writer. Right. I'm not an actor. I'm not a cinematographer. Right. Right. And those, you know, th- those, those professions, those crafts are, they, they, they take a lifetime to, uh, to, to, to hone, mm-hmm. to be the best. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's probably something that if I could go back, not that it's ever too late, because that's why we're here talking that's about reinventing. Right. Yeah. Right. But if I could go back and, know what I know now, I would have paralleled a few of those things Yeah, to truly be the multi-hyphenate that right. we all try to be, right? It right. used to be in, in Hollywood, you know, he's a multi-hyphenate. He's right. a producer, <laughs> director, right? right. You know, Actor. Uh, or athletes today, yeah. right? Athletes oh, are like, yeah. they're an athlete, they're a philanthropist, or they're, you know, you look at LeBron, he's, activist. A, he's an entrepreneur, yeah. Yeah. he's a venture capitalist, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, really what I've come to realize about myself uh, that, you know, that's, that's one area that I missed because I didn't stop. Not so much questioning, like, why am I here? But more deeper in the moment into it rather than going, well, and I think, you know, those of us that do kind of orchestrate or produce, you know, having run agencies, running my agency, you doing what you're doing, we surround ourselves with great people so that we can be the puppeteer. We can, you know, sort of help orchestrate all those moving pieces. But to kind of go deep with one of them and learn more, I mean, I'm so envious sometimes of my team when I look at how they get to go deep on something that they're being assigned. And I'm really envious when I see that they have the luxury of the time because it is their job to focus on something specific. And I'm just kind of getting the top line, the cliff notes, you know, the sort of the the subheadings and I'm not getting to go deep. And I think, I I love what you're saying because I think it's such an important thing to recognize. A, it is never too late, right? We've got our whole life ahead of us and what else are we going to do with that time? It also enables us to find things that now we know are going to be meaningful to go deeper with. You know, who says you're not going to be a director and up there on, you know, the stage accepting an award in five years from now for something else that you did because you chose to go deeper down that road. And you're right. This is, you know, we're here to talk about reinvention and what's possible. And it's really an opportunity to kind of stop. And there's a chapter in my book, as you know, which is, hello, are you still in there? That moment. And that's why I always love to ask that question at the beginning of an interview, who was little Doug? Because when we stop and go, wow, what was I passionate? I wanted to be a ballerina. Okay. I'm not going to be a ballerina, but I might go take ballet classes every day and it's going to make my heart sing and make my soul feel alive just to do that. Even though I'm going to my nine to five job every day, but just listening to ourselves sometimes, which we don't do a lot of. And as we talked about people like you, and I, we really don't spend a lot of time because we're too busy being busy. But that ability to stop and reflect and to listen to ourselves and kind of go, hey, what do I want to do? What is my next chapter? What could I tweak and put a little more energy and focus in and and, yeah. and spend time doing? So 
I love that you sort of really went there with what you just said. I think it's so important that we take the time to do that for ourselves. And, you know, it begs the question with all that you've done, you know, what are those next chapters? What are the things that excite you? What are the industries that are kind of lighting you up right now that you're dabbling in? Yeah. So, I mean, in my life, I, uh, I got to a point where, you know, purpose, uh, became very important. And, uh, you know, I, I think some of that had to do with the work that I did with Sean Combs. Uh, uh, you know, some of that had to do with some of the work at Ogilvy, some advisory work I did uh, with Graham Hill when he had uh, Tree Hugger, mm-hmm. and that really, you know, got me attuned to the environment and some of those issues. Um, and you know, with everything, I, I kind of try and immerse myself uh, in 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 an understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit of a jack of all trades, master of none. Mm. Uh, I can talk about a lot of things, uh, some of which I can go very deep on, others mm-hmm. which I can surface it. Mm-hmm. But the reason that I try and know as as much as I can about uh, the environment and and what's new and what will be next is my ability to connect those dots, right, and to, make sure to, that the powers, that, yeah. kind of putting two and two together, make a hundred, not six. Yeah, and and I and I I think over time I've I've been able to to help form an image for people who may be a little challenged by what's out there or how fast it's moving. You know, right now with Web three and the metaverse, and you know, uh, literally four hours a day I'm on calls educating people from major investment banks uh, with literally C suite execs in those banks that are managing. Mm-hmm trillions of dollars in Manhattan who say, look, I had one of the major consulting firms in here, right? And within three months, uh, within 45 minutes, you basically taught me more than they they studied and came back with a report in three months. And I understand it more from this conversation, right? right? Yeah. Uh, Which is great, right? Um, And again, having been in that web 1.0 period in my life at the red herring and then that web 2 period from you know hollywood stock exchange to really now with a lot of the other you know internet based digital based ventures uh and now seeing this web 3 space that's emerging which has been accelerated by covid due to adoption of crypto and the rise of an nft which was out there. It's not like it was new and, you know, all of a sudden there's an NFC. It was something. It just didn't have a home and or an application. Right. Um, you know, that's a space that's very exciting to me because uh, the world we live in right now with 8 billion people on the planet, yeah. right, is smaller than it's ever been. Yeah. And we're all so connected to each other through our devices. We're also connected to the physical world. Uh, and now we have the ability to uh, to to change the physical world based on the digital simulation that that coincides with it. Yeah. Um, that the power of that, you know, and I know that there's a downside to it. I get it. Uh, I know big tech and what's happening out there, but at the root of Web three is this decentralization, right? The metaverse will not be built by Meta. Right. Right. Facebook will not control your data. Right. Right. And this is about empowerment. This is about taking uh, it back and creating with it. Right. That's correct. That's correct. And people around the world, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a cattle person in Kenya or a a young, 
uh, a person in the Philippines uh, playing Axie Infinity, right? Uh, the play to earn aspects, whether it's learn to earn, where I'm going to educate myself and earn along the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's it's the idea of STEM-based learning and what I call STEAM-based applications, like right. STEAM being sports right. and telecom and entertainment and art and math right. uh, and marketing yeah. or media, yeah. right? It, it's it, it's changing and enabling us yeah. to, uh, you know, not to pull a, a page out of uh, uh, IBM and, and subsequently Apple to think differently. Right. Well, it's expanding and, our mind and the possibilities we've been living. You know, they say we lo- we use what percentage of our brain, like so little. <laughs> but yeah, we're now looking at how to expand our minds and the possibility of thinking so beyond the physical realm, which, you know, from a metaphysical standpoint, that's not a new conversation. No. I mean, you know, which is quite fascinating when you really start to look at it at that level. Yeah. So that's where, you know, what, what I'm really excited about uh, in one area of my life, um, you know, we've been spending a lot of time there. Um, like I said, the, the environmental stuff, you know, I continue down that path uh, uh, and really, you know, even on the, the Web3 side where it's more computing power and NFTs are burning all of this energy. And right. So there's a whole conversation and dialogue around, around that, which, plays back into the impact that this is all having on the environment. Yeah. Um, you know, it plays into fast fashion. When you look at fast fashion, fashion industry is the second most polluter in the world, second largest polluter in the world. Yeah. Right. Uh, why do we buy fashion? Because we want to look good. Well, if I have a digital twin and I can buy digital goods, right. Uh, so my, that looks good. And maybe I don't need to buy all the clothes that I happen to buy in the physical world. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that's an area that, is got me really excited and uh, you know uh, and then that then further extends into education. And when you start to think about the impact that, you know, web three can have, and I've started to really hone in on, you know, the idea of meta you, right? Like what, what is a, what is an educational platform uh, to where like the, um, I don't know whether you saw, but like the uh, robot that just did the, uh, surgery on a pig that was, uh, more precise than any, uh, surgeon could ever do, uh, in the physical world. Wow. When you start to think about the, uh, educational opportunities that the virtual worlds can create, right. Uh, through the knowledge base of the physical people yeah. that are here today, but may, may not be here tomorrow. Right. I mean, imagine Einstein, having been captured to teach a class at Princeton mm, my God. and having that as your teacher a hundred years from now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So when you start to connect those dots along the way, yeah. you know, does it allow us to save our planet? Does it allow us to take the belief of what Bucky Fuller, right. With his world game said, where for the greater good of mankind without destroying the planet, right. If I can sort of, you know, paraphrase what he said, right. He wants all people to be equal, right? Well, those that have too much. Sorry, yeah. no, go ahead. What, I was going to say, those that have too much, right, are able to balance to those that don't have enough right. without destroying the planet and the natural systems that are around right. us. And I was just going to say, look at the impact just in the last two years. And I'm living here in LA and you spend a lot of time here. In the last two years, because we were forced to connect more digitally, 
than we did in person because of COVID. Look at the effect it had on the air and the pollution in our city alone, let alone the rest of the world. And there was a lot of talk about this in the middle of COVID that all of that impact of us connecting, not getting on airplanes, not getting in vehicles. I mean, there is a correlation to the way we've now accelerated and evolved as connectors, as business people, as humanity. It's not fun. I miss it like crazy. I want my people and I'm a very social connected being, but I can so appreciate the one less meeting with let's just do it online and talk and move on to the next thing and the efficiency of that. Not everything has to require getting on a plane, being in person, getting in a vehicle and going somewhere. And if that's going to help our planet in some way, then there's some real good that's coming out of that too. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, and 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 what that also does is it reconnects us to 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 our family. It reconnects us to oh, yeah. our community, right? It uh, the amount of time that you know you and I have spent over the years going to and from airport mm-hmm. and in the car to the airport and getting to the hotel and you know that whole process. And yeah, it's it's you know it's exciting. And there's nothing better than you arrive at a conference that you've been going to for 20 years and seeing people you haven't seen and reconnecting, going to your favorite pizza place on the closets and all of that stuff. But, you know, it's okay to take a break from that. Right. And, you know, and, and that's, where, where culture has gotten with that whole FOMO, you know, like, oh my God, exactly. if I'm not there, what am I missing? No, it's, right? it's definitely reduced the FOMO situation where you're like, maybe I can just go every other year. Maybe I just only need to go every three years. And everybody else is functioning on that same wavelength. So you don't have the FOMO that you had before because it's not like you're the only one making those decisions. Um, Doug, this is, I love where this conversation has gone and I feel like we could do like a whole other episode on this. I'm mindful of your time and I want to ask you sort of a fun last question before we have to wrap up. And you, you've mentioned a lot of really interesting people that you've worked with along the way. So I think this is going to be a little challenging for you, but if you were to have a dinner party and you could have three or four really awesome people around the table that you admire that you'd love to hear just kind of break bread and have a glass of wine with, they could be dead or alive. But who do you think would really just have a wonderful impact on you and who would you want to do that with? It's a good question. Um, it's a great question. Well, pro- I look, I mean, from an art standpoint, I'm, I'm going to s- try and stay in the living, if you will. Um, Go for it. So maybe I'll get lucky enough to manifest my, uh, my, my dream here. Okay. Um, you know, from an art standpoint, uh, I would say probably Damien Hirst. Mm. Yeah. Um, pretty fascinated by how Damien's mind works. Uh, the, the narrative that's told through the art, the, his views right now on digital art and what's happening out there in the world. Uh, and, you know, sort of how that's changing, you know, the artist relationship with a collector and the artist relationship with, with the economics of, of, of the art world. Yeah. So that would be kind of, you know, Love my that. art pillar. Yeah. And, and I look at things as, as I know, you know, I do through the lens of culture, right? Yeah. For me, it's, it's, it's all about those cultural moments. Um, I'd probably have Jeff Bezos at the dinner. Yeah. Uh, uh, really to understand 
what I call the techopoly that he's built. It's mm. not a monopoly or a duopoly. It's really a techopoly. Love that. Um, it's a vertically and horizontally integrated company that um, was driven off of a book and has now become, you know, probably Everything. the second largest economy in the world. Yeah. And, um, you know, has allowed him and enabled him to do other things in terms of space exploration. Yeah. Um, and pivoting into new areas. Uh, you know, he is, he is a modern day Rockefeller in my view and mm. would really like to, you know, dig Have a little a deeper into, <laughs> into that. Yeah. Um, definitely. and I think the dynamic between him and Hearst would be pretty interesting. Oh yeah. I think I'd probably want Madeline Albright there. Oh, fantastic. Uh, from a global view, uh, from a sense of where we've been and where we've come mm. uh, as a as a leader and a and a voice of modern women to some degree, as well as yeah. uh, how how she got where she is yeah. and the the views of the changing world that we have yeah. before us, yeah. right where. It may be within five years that we are not the superpower that we once were with mm -hmm. China and, and the growth that's happening there. And mm -hmm. uh, really understanding that inflection point, if you, you know, yeah. if, you, if you believe in those pivotal moments, yeah. as Andy Grove talks about, where yeah. like we could have gone that way and we could go that way. And 100%. like, what was that moment? Yeah. Um, One more. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like you're on a roll. I don't want to stop you. So I'm like, well, give me one more. Someone yeah, from, music, um, from the music world, maybe? Yeah, that's where that's where I was going. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, I mean, that's a tough one. Um, it really. You want, you want him to pull out his guitar and sing with? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm I, I'm actually leaning a little bit more, and I did have an opportunity uh, to to sit with him twice, never at a dinner party, shall I say? But uh, uh, I'm leaning a little bit more to Jay Z. Mm, um, you know, uh, and, yeah. and again, you know, Picasso, baby, the world of art, the world of music, the world of culture. Yeah, he's uh, really been know, a game changer. His 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 position right now. Uh, just in, in terms of social issues and what he's doing there. Um, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's an inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. He, he, there, there were some artists who were very, uh, very out front and, you know, in terms of, of, of where, how they've gotten where they are. Right. With, yeah. And yes, he's sung about those things, et cetera, but you know, the sophistication of, yeah. of Jay right now, 100%. um, as as a business person right. and as a leader and he's as so an inspiration, yeah, he's so much more, yeah. and it's understated. It's yeah. it's just agree, right? It's that you see it the tip of that iceberg is it's very is subtle, and you're it, like, really, what, what? Right. Like, no, it's what's going on underneath that iceberg is like underneath yeah. that water, just so impactful. Yeah. And you know, I think that I, I I think that you know he's. The, the creative aspect. So that's, that would be my table. And if I could throw in there, I, I would probably want the, I probably want the, the meal to be hosted at Noma. Love that. Okay. We're going to manifest really? this. I, I'm coming too, by the way. <laughs> uh, I, I figured you and Nadine would be. hundred percent. <laughs> oh, I love it. Doug, I just adore 
our conversations always. I'm excited that you've been a guest on my show today. I thank you so much. You've shared so much just insight and wisdom and just thoughtfulness about who you are and how you're choosing to live your life. And I hope that others hear that and kind of take take away from that the possibility thinking that comes with that, the openness, the appreciation for every step of what we do and how it adds to our lives and who we are and how we can take it to the next thing. And I just, I'm thrilled to have this time together. So I thank you again. And if folks want to reach you, um, LinkedIn, Douglas Scott, and we'll put it in the show notes. And um, I can't wait for our dinner party. We'll get working on that. I'll make the reservation and start making some phone calls. (laughs) Right? Yeah. They're they're books way out. So yes, uh, we'll have to start working on that. I love it. Well, thank you again. And thank you to the audience that's listening for being a part of this conversation. Feel free to tune in to the reinventionexchange.com where you can get lots more content, blogs, virtual chats, um, interviews with amazing people like Doug and so many who have come before him over the last two years that we've been talking to. And have a wonderful week. We'll see you back here next Thursday. And happy reinventing, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Power of Reinvention. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Wouldn't mind a five-star review. It would be greatly appreciated. Also, be sure to visit thereinventionexchange.com to share your reinvention stories, suggest a guest, join the newsletter mailing list, get access to my book, which is called Reinvent Your Life, What Are You Waiting For?, and discover fantastic bonus content with my blogs and listen in to the Reinvention Virtual Chat series. Don't forget to join me next week for another episode. Please share with a friend and thank you for listening. Happy reinventing. <laughs>